Welcome to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. To contact Kevin Williams, send him an email at canningplus7 at protonmail.com. That's canningplus7 at protonmail.com. Plus is spelled out when sending him an email. So the second stage is teaching them, okay, if I send you out for this bird, picking it up politely and coming back to me with it and then giving it to me when I ask you to, which if you think about it, you know, dogs are predators, right? I'm asking you to go out and pick up some prey and then return it to me and give it away and give it to me. Welcome to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man, podcasting to you from Billings, Montana. On this episode of the Canning Plus 7 podcast, I interviewed a person named Marty Golden. Marty Golden owns a business and facility called FlyCreekKennels.com. That's FlyCreekKennels.com. We discussed how Marty got into training hunting dogs, how he got to Billings. We also discussed his certification in training dogs. We also talked about the hardest part about training dogs, and we also discussed how his dogs are trained from the beginning to end. We also discussed the controversial topic, is it good to put your dog in a crate or not? He doesn't see anything wrong with it, and I don't either after reading about it and talking about it, if it is done correctly. Yes, it can be abusive, but if you listen to the podcast, you will find that there are ways to put your dog in a crate without being abusive. We also discuss his favorite gun to use, as I usually like to ask preppers, what is their favorite gun to use? Now, Marty is not a prepper, but he does train hunting dogs, and he does live here in Montana. So that means, most likely, he's a gun carrier. Not everybody in Montana carries guns, but a lot of people do, especially in the rural part of Montana. Oh, and by the way, I asked him what he likes best about his job. One more thing. There were connection issues at the very end of the podcast when we started talking about guns and what he likes about his job. Don't worry. I did the best I could, and you will be able to hear him if you turn the volume up loud enough. And the connection, it sounds like he was distorted for a bit, and then he came back. That has nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with Marty's connection. Not Marty's fault either. I just think the connection was bad at times on Zoom at his place. Thank you very much for listening to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. It is the Canning Plus 7 podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, the Blind Montana Man of Billings, Montana. It's great to be back here. I took a week off, but we're back. Marty Golden is my guest. Marty Golden trains guide dogs. He owns a place, uh, he owns a business called Fly Creek Kennels, and he trains hunting dogs. Now, some of you are going to say, what does this have to do with prepping or canning or whatever? Well, quite a bit. In this day and age, uh, with food shortages about to be on the horizon, in some cases, possibly so, yeah, quite a bit. I uh, So that's, again, this is canning plus seven. So one of the things we talk about is prepping and hunting is definitely part of prepping. Don't you think, Marty? I would agree. I'm not much of a big prepper, I, I'll be honest, but I, that's okay. I, def- I definitely feel like, um, you know, being out, being able to harvest your own food is a big part of that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so we're going to talk about how he trains dogs and all that. Now, Marty got his certification at the Triple Crown Academy in uh, near Austin. I guess it was in Austin, wasn't it? 
actually outside of Austin by about 45 minutes, a little town called Hutto, Texas, Hutto, Texas. So it's probably not so small anymore. Okay. And then uh, you started a business in 2003 here in Billings, and then you upgraded. Uh, that was, uh, uh, what was that business called? Big Sky Dog Training is the original business. Started that in 2003. And then actually just this past year, uh, beginning of 2021, we have changed our name to Fly Creek Kennels. So Okay, now you changed. So you started at Big Sky Dogs Incorporated, and then you changed it to Big Sky Kennel. Why the name change from Big Sky Dogs Incorporated to Big Sky Kennel, uh, Kennel, and now to uh, Fly Creek Kennels? Well, originally, actually, it was just Big Sky Dog Training Inc. All right, Incorporated, and yeah. and we just switched recently to Fly Creek Kennels, and mostly it was. Um, I just kind of wanted to stand out a little bit. The area of Montana itself in general has a lot of big sky companies. Um, and, you know, back in 2003, it was easy for people to remember. That's kind of my idea behind naming it that, Big Sky Dog Training. And, you know, 20 years later, 17 years later, I just wanted something a little bit more elegant, a little bit more professional, uh, something that stood out amongst the other pet industry companies that had big sky in their titles so so let's learn a little bit about you first and then i want to get into your facility and then we'll talk about training um are, are you from montana originally originally i am from back east i'm from long island new york graduated high school in 1992 moved out to billings uh, went to school at rocky mountain college Got my teaching degree in physical education and health enhancement, and unfortunately never went into teaching. Uh, was running my own uh, lawn maintenance landscape company at the time, and rather than going into teaching, I just continued to run that company for the next eight to ten years. So. Okay, and so what got you interested in training dogs? Well, I always had a fascination for it. Um, to be honest, growing up, I never had a well-behaved dog. And I promised myself when I got older and was out on my own that I would get a dog and I would train that dog. My biggest goal at the time, Kevin, was for that dog to just stay with me and not run off. Um, it was, uh, a simple goal, but yet a very important one when it comes to having your dog off leash. And so when I was in my junior year of college, I started researching breeds of dogs and I liked bigger breeds. And so I went with the English Mastiff and trained that dog. Um, just basic obedience, never taught her how to hunt or anything like that. Just had to be a really good companion and had her for about eight years and fell in love with the process of training and dog behavior. Now, did you read books on how to train dogs with this other dog that you had for eight years or what? Yeah, as a matter of fact, so that was back in 95, possibly late 94, 95. And what I would do is I would go over to Barnes and Noble. And at the time, you know, there wasn't any Internet. Uh, most of the information that you the internet get was, was around, but not as uh, not as not as readily available. I had dial-up and well, I knew people that had dial-up in 95, but carry on. 
Yeah, you're right. And in Billings, though, it was very rare. I think, as a matter of fact, when I went to school at Rocky, the only way to get a hold of good Internet was to go over to what uh, is now MSU. At the time, it was Eastern. And so, yeah, it was around, but very um, rare. It wasn't it wasn't a, a source of. Uh, yeah, I think the Internet provider here in 95 was BigSky.net, wasn't it? <laughs> Possibly. I don't know, to be honest with you, man. So anyway, I used to go to the uh, the bookstores and sit. They had sitting areas where you could sit and read magazines and books. And of course, in college, I didn't have a lot of money to buy that stuff. So I would kind of poach the magazines and sit and read and research and study. And what I found was that uh, through my uh, research that a lot of the dog training that I was researching and studying was very similar to uh, Psych 101, which I which I studied and came across in college. So there was that connection uh, and fascination between that. And uh, I just kind of ran from there. I, I, Like I said, I, I picked the English Mastiff and got that dog at eight weeks old and hit the ground running. As soon as I got her, I knew she was going to be a big dog. She wound up maxing out at about 180 pounds. And I knew she'd be a big dog. So it was important for me to get good control over her at a young age and just enjoyed the process of training the dog and interacting with the dog and making those connections where it made sense to her on, on what I wanted from her, you know? Yeah. And so what made you go to Rocky mountain college? Is that why you moved out here is it because you got a good deal at Rocky mountain or did you want to get away from New York or what? Yeah, I, I really did. I wanted to get away from the East coast. I wanted to get away from the big city, the crowds, um, I just wanted to, I wanted to come out West and, and I, I, you know, growing up, I had cousins who lived in Colorado and always enjoyed visiting them and, and enjoyed the mountains and the things that we would do when we would go visit them. And so I figured, you know, take a few years, go out West, go to school, enjoying the hiking, the camping, the skiing, everything that comes along with living out West. And I quickly fell in love with it. And Honestly, I've only been back to New York since then, probably two times, one for a uh, Christmas and then the other for a very close friend of mine's wedding. So I haven't been back since. So. Okay. So when did you go to the Golden, the uh, Triple Golden Academy? What year was that and how long was your certification or how long did it take to get your certification? So my English Mastiff passed away on me uh, and that was in... 2002 and when she did i decided i had heard about this it's actually called it at the time was called triple crown dog academy triple crown dog academy oh, okay and, yep and so i decided at that time to uh you know just go down there they had a program that was I believe it was a I want to say a 14 week program, 12 to 14 week program, maybe 16. I can't quite remember. Um, and you would live on site. They had over 300 acres, housing, uh, event centers, over 200 kennels where they would board and train dogs. But then they also had a program for people to come down and become part of a class that they would train and teach you to become a professional dog trainer. And you touched on a lot of different categories, mostly what, what they consider behavior modification, taking dogs with very little manners and obedience and training them how to behave. And, you know, sometimes we dealt with aggressive cases. And other times we uh, worked on uh, search and rescue 
type classes, police detection, um, personal protection. And another one of the things we touched on was hunting dogs. And so they really tried to give you an array of different fields in the dog training world uh, to try to get your uh, feet wet in a sense and become familiar with it. And through that process, it was nice because you got to decide in a sense what you wanted to pursue. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, just reading your bio off the internet here that you got to work with a lot of high, highly respected dog trainers out there. Was that just part of the apprenticeship? Did you get lucky? Cause I know that uh, after you were done, you were there for seven months with an apprenticeship. Did you, and you, is that because you excelled very fast in your training or how did you get that lucky? Well, it was a class of about 20 students and they did hold a position uh, for one person. Um, you basically, uh, in the beginning of the semester, I guess you'd call it, you would put your name on a list of people who were interested in that one position, that one apprenticeship position that they would give out. It was a paid position, so that was kind of nice. Um, and then you were really, you, you know, you were picked by the instructors um, based on your performance. So I think um, a lot of hard work, um, a lot of passion, uh, some natural ability, um, and then, you know, a little bit of luck as well. You know, I think all of that was uh, part of it. Um, I felt very fortunate, whether it was hard work or luck, I did feel fortunate to be able to stay around and work the one caveat was that at the time I really wasn't interested in um, hunting dogs and, and gun dog training. What I was very interested in was, uh, you know, behavior modification and a little bit of search and rescue. Um, but the contingency of staying was that they, they had multiple departments down there that you could work in. Um, but at the time they only had one position open uh, working for the retriever trainer. And so I took it, I, I took it and I said, whatever keeps me here, as long as I can stay and continue to work with dogs, I thought that would benefit me and uh, give me the experience that I would need to eventually go out on my own. And what I did was I actually worked in the retriever department during the day as an assistant to their head retriever trainer. And then at night I would uh, teach group classes, which included a lot of basic obedience, kind of like your standard um, group class that you could think of where it's got 10 to 15 students, one instructor, maybe two instructors. And, you know, it's kind of you know, once a week type deal uh, where a group comes in and you, and you work with them. And so I was, I was keeping my hands um, on dogs for basic obedience, but also learning a new uh, style of dog training through the hunting department. Okay, so I want to talk about your facility because I've been out there and uh, it's clear out in, how do you pronounce the name of the town? Ballantine? Ballantine, Montana. It is about 35 minutes east, east of Billings, isn't it? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Kind of by the town of Warden. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so you've got a nice facility out there. It's 10 acres, a technical pond. What is the technical pond? What makes it technical? Uh, basically, the way it's designed, it's got points and bays and 
just it, it's a term that's used in the industry where there are pawns uh, around each other that can create different scenarios for dogs to uh, navigate. So, for instance, if I'm trying to teach a dog uh, to swim in open water, there's a large round part of a pond. And then if there's a small booted area where we can teach a dog to cross over a point, we've got the ability to do that. Or if they got to get into the water and then out of the water and then back into the water, um, depending on where you're standing, you can set up that scenario as well. So the technical term is technical pawns. That's what they call them. So, um, and we've, we've got three of them. Um, and again, depending on whether you're standing on the north side, south side, east side, or west side, you can create different scenarios for the dogs to navigate. Okay. So it, okay. So you're not able to create waves like a wave pool or anything like that in your pods, are you? No, not at all. Unless okay. it's a really windy day like it was the other day. <laughs> okay. So you also have a 2000 square foot kennel, but then it says, and I'm a little confused here on the website, it says that you've got two kennels. So your 2000 square foot kennel, is that outdoors or indoors? Cause I, I was under the impression that they're, they're climate controlled. Yeah, they're climate control. We've got air conditioning in the summer, heat in the winter. Um, it, it could be a combination. I'm, I'm not sure the exact numbers now that I'm not looking at my website, but we have two buildings. Uh, one we call the South Building and the other we call the East Building. And that's just basically where they're placed in, in um, conjunction with each other. So one building has um, uh, about 10 runs in it and the other one has about 15. So we can hold up to uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 dogs on a full, on a full scale. So. Okay. So you, you can hold up to 50 dogs in each kennel or. No, gosh. Well, no, all together with all the kennels. Combined, okay. About 50 dogs. So, yeah, I only train 10 dogs at a time. And I typically take two groups of hunting dogs per summer. So I usually start up with my first group of, uh, hunting dogs in February, believe it or not, middle of February. And they usually run until the end of May, about 14 weeks later. And then we'll start up our second group, which is a week later, right in, right in June. And then we finish up toward the beginning of September, trying to get all the dogs out of here before the uh, waterfowl season starts. So Okay. Now you also have an arena. I guess you use that arena, I guess, mostly in the winter, correct? Maybe early spring, late fall, correct? Yeah, I do uh, use it a lot in, when the weather is inclement. So even if it's raining during the summer, I can go in there and work on some basic obedience. Um, I also work on a lot of uh, standard force fetch or trained retrieve in there. I've got some tools in there that I use to stay out of the weather and work the dogs. So uh, I do use it all year round. It just depends on what I'm working on with the dogs at the time. So now if you're training, a, first of all, how long does it take to train a dog? Well, I will say it takes a lifetime, but in our program, we usually take a dog in and we'll work with them for about 14 weeks uh, before they're ready to go home. So I say a lifetime and I'm not trying to be sarcastic about that, but I feel like training is a, a, a constant um, process. I don't think you're ever done training, just like humans, in my opinion, are never done learning. So, um, but for us to get the basics down, uh, get your dog out to where they are reliable and safe and consistent out in the field, usually takes us about 14 weeks. Some dogs are a little bit longer, but 
with our program and our process, we 14 weeks will usually cover most of what we're trying to complete. Okay. So if I have a dog and I bring it in in December and it mm-hmm. takes 14 weeks, I have, are you going to use your pond up here in Montana? Cause the winters are very brutal up here. Yeah. So that's why I said earlier, you know, we just take two groups and that one starts in February. So we don't do a lot of water work in the beginning of that February group. We do not train uh, during this time of year. And this time of year right now is, is November, December. Um, it, we just can't, it's not consistent. The weather's not consistent. Um, so we really, we need that consistent weather in order to stay on track for that 14 weeks. So this is what I would consider the hunting season. Um, this is when I want the dogs at home with their owners out hunting. This is when I'm out with my personal dogs hunting. This is kind of my time of year where we refurbish around the kennels. We kind of catch up on things that need fixing. Um, and get ready for a busy season again towards the middle of February. We do a lot of boarding, and that really allows us to uh, hold off on training and still be able to afford to do this for a living. You know, that that boarding dogs can be a really nice way to supplement our income. Yeah, so what is the hardest part about training a dog? I think the hardest part about training a dog is meeting an owner's expectations. Um, you know, I know as a professional trainer that these dogs are all different and I usually, uh, start the process off with a consult or an evaluation. Well, let's say you've got a dog and you want him to hunt. I usually start off with a consult where you come in and I get to see what we're dealing with, see what kind of dog we have to give you really an honest answer on whether or not the dog is even going to make the program. Um, the dogs that, that really do well are the ones with a lot of the natural ability uh, that like to retrieve, that are strong-minded, physically fit, um, and just uh, are compliant. You know, they, they, they can teach them something and they'll retain it and you can touch on it again the next day and add a little bit more and they're excited about learning or Again, they're able to, uh, you know, absorb the information I'm trying to teach them, the drills that we're trying to teach them. Those are the ones that really do well in the program. The dogs that um, don't really want to work are very difficult because you can't force an animal to want to work. Um, You can guide them and you can capture uh, their natural ability and you can point them in a direction that it will benefit you as a hunter. Um, But you can't, you know, it's like the old saying, you can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink it. That's exactly what dogs are like in that sense. You know? So how, how, at what uh, point in your training, do you realize that this dog isn't very good or this dog isn't willing to work? And then have you ever been a, have you ever trained a dog and then you realized that dog wasn't right for you? And so you just called the owner and said, this isn't working. Yes. And I can usually tell um, the first couple of weeks of training, whether or not the dog is going to make it through the full program. And, and that just is a, is a bonus for me because of the amount of experience I have uh, dealing with different temperaments and different um you know, desires and different energy levels. And so, yeah, I can usually tell pretty quick in the first couple of weeks, whether or not the dog is going to make it to the program. 
And so what I'll, and I am very honest with people, I'll tell them, look, just because your dog is a black lab doesn't mean it's going to do what you think it's going to do. Just because you paid a lot of money for this dog when it was a puppy doesn't mean it's going to do what you want it to do. And so along the way, I'm very honest with people and keep them updated with the, pro- the process and the progress that the dog is making. And again, I think the hardest part is the owner's expectations, because if I do have to make that call and explain to people that, look, Fido is just, this doesn't really have it. It's disappointing to people, you know, and, and um, I think in the end, they appreciate my honesty. I'm not wasting their time and I'm not wasting their money. Um, but it's challenging because you never want to give people bad news, you know, um, but it's part of my job. You know, and, and I think um, there's no point in trying to get something out of a dog that they're just not willing to give you. You just never want to get to the point where the situation becomes abusive and uncomfortable. And if, if the dog's not having fun and I'm not having fun, then we're doing something wrong. We're, we've got the wrong dog in for that. So. What breeds are good for hunting dogs? What uh, breeds would you recommend? Well, I'm biased because I'm a big Labrador retriever guy. Um, but again, not all Labrador retrievers are, are good candidates um, for work. Um, some of them are lazy. Some of them are um, extremely immature. Um, some of them can be excellent in the sense that they have everything it takes. They've got, like I said, the desire, the want to retrieve, the want to work. Um, so I'm, I'm biased toward the labs. And that's just me. Um, there's a lot of pointing breeds out there. Um, just to name a few are the you know, German Shorthair, um, the German Wirehair, the Drothar, uh, the Griffon, the Brittany. They're, they're all very popular um, pointing breeds. Um, and then there's other flushes like, uh, you know, a lab technically falls into the flushing category, but, um, you know, Springer Spaniels is a, is a pretty common example. Um, of another flushing breed. So there's, there's many breeds out there. Um, I find that the labs for me and my, and my um, lifestyle work really well because they really are the all around dog for me. They, they do well in an upland situation and they do really well in a waterfowl situation, whether I'm hunting in a uh, field um, or I'm hunting a river or pond or some sort of water. So I'm, I'm biased and, and, and I lean toward the labs, but I think what's important is that, um, that if there is a breed out there that somebody is interested in, that they do the research and they try to understand that you cannot go out and buy yourself a Volkswagen and try and turn it into a Ferrari or vice versa. You went out and you bought yourself a really hot dog, one that really wants to work. You better work that dog or it's going to drive you crazy. And, and, and what I mean by taking a Volkswagen is a dog that really doesn't have a lot of desire to work and trying to turn them into a dog that does. So spending the time doing your research, which in my opinion is easier than ever in this world with all the technology yes. and the internet and books and groups on Facebook and I mean, there's so many ways to take your time and find the right dog, because to me, that's the first start. You know, if you, if you get the right dog and you get him from the right lines and he's a healthy dog and he comes from, you know, lines that, um, uh, you know, come from working stock, 
it's only going to make the job easier. If you go out and, you know, you see a pretty website and it's got a pretty dog and it says, you know, things along the lines of, oh, these are, you know, the, the parents are good hunting dogs and they're AKC registered, which is people think is a big deal in, <laughs> in the world of dogs. But all it means is that your dog is, is tight. It's got basically a registration like your vehicle has a registration. It doesn't mean it's a good car. It just means it is the car that you bought. Um, and so it's really important that people talk to breeders and get a feel for them and follow their gut instinct. And if they don't understand what they're looking for, that they do contact a trainer uh, or a breeder and ask them, what should I be looking for? Like, what is the type of stuff I should be looking for? Because again, you're going to have this dog somewhere between 10 to 15 years and making that decision on where to get the dog and which dog to get is the first correct step in my opinion. Okay. So walk me through the process of training a dog. Let's say I come to you, I want my dog trained or I'm a, what, uh, walk me through the whole entire process from week one to week 14 or 16. Okay. So I'll try to, I could take, I could take all night telling you that, but yeah. we'll try to break it down in, in a very simple uh, format. So okay. what I focus on the first four to six weeks of training a dog is training basic obedience to an advanced level. Okay. So we're working on commands like sit. We're working on the commands like come or here, uh, down or lay, um, you know, basic manners like, um, you know, off or some people will use the word down for not jumping up. Um, the, com the place command is another big command. So there's about, five or six solid commands that I want the dog to be able to do under heavy distractions um, off leash by about the six week mark. Okay. So that's a dog that I can now actually safely take out into the field off leash and start to teach them things. Right. So after that process, we go into uh, the old school term for it is force fetch, where we force fetch dogs or we train retrieve them, which means that we're going to teach them how to pick up a bird and gently deliver it to our hand. Because we don't want dogs running out, grabbing a bird, chewing on it, flinging it around, pulling on it, tearing it apart, running off with it. That does us no good. So the second stage is teaching them, okay, if I send you out for this bird, picking it up politely and coming back to me with it and then giving it to me when I ask you to, which if you think about it, you know, dogs are predators, right? I'm yeah. asking you to go out and pick up some prey and then return it to me and give it away and give it to me. Right? Now, when you say pick up a bird, are you talking about picking up the bird while it's alive or picking it up once the bird is shot? both because that oh. will happen you know there's a lot of times where uh, you'll shoot a bird and you'll wound it and it'll go down and you need to send the dog to recover that bird so a lot of times that'll happen in pheasant hunting um, a lot of times that will happen in uh, goose hunting or, or duck hunting all, all of the bird hunting I mean, there's there's been many times where we've taken shots on birds and they don't die you know they they go down wounded which to me is crucial to recover that bird because the last thing I want to do is have that bird wander off wounded and suffer somewhere. You know, I'd like to put it out of its misery fairly quickly and get it back to us. So 
we can put it in the freezer, you know? Yeah. So how does a dog, uh, and, uh, forgive my ignorance here. I'm not a hunter, but how does a dog retrieve a bird while it's alive? And then once it's retrieved, obviously the hunter still has to shoot it. So how would you shoot the bird without shooting your dog? If your dog has the bird in its mouth or whatever, while it's alive. Well, you technically, you don't reshoot it. You want to get the bird back to you. And then there's very quick ways to, uh, put them down, whether it's to break their neck, which is really the, the simplest and most common way to do it. Uh, you, you know, where you can, uh, take a bird and, um, snap its neck and, and just put them down quickly. So, oh, okay. so you're time, talking about once the bird is shot, then the dog goes out and retrieves it. And if it's alive, then you break its neck or something like that. Correct. Well, after they've okay. returned it to us. Yep. Yep. So, okay. Yeah. And so the idea is that you do have to have an experienced dog that is going to pick up a bird that might be, you know, flapping its wings in its face or pecking at its face or trying to get away. You know, I mean, the birds that are alive, they're not going to give up easily. Some of them will, but a lot of them won't, you know, so. Okay. So you do this, uh, this fetch and throw training and then uh, carry on. Sorry for the interruption. I'm just uh, wanted to. No, yeah. So after, after the force fetch process, then we take all the abilities that they've learned under basic obedience and how to retrieve properly and really just start to incorporate it out in the field. We'll set up uh, waterfowl scenarios, um, you know, very much like the ones we'll see when we go hunting uh, where birds will land in the water and we'll have the dogs retrieve them. Um, or, you know, they land on the other side of water on land and the dogs have to, you know, take the straightest line possible to that bird, pick it up, bring it back. Um, there'll be days where we set up, um, field hunts where we put out decoys and lay down blinds and set up a scenario that looks like maybe a, uh, field goose hunt or a field duck hunt and work the dogs. So they, um, they understand how to navigate through the decoys and stay steady in the dog blinds and. And then, of course, there's upland training, too, where we'll train dogs to track and look for birds in um, upland cover and flush birds up and shoot them. And then they'll have to um, track them in the air and chase them down and recover them and, and bring them back to us. So, you know, that's the final stage of the training uh, where we can take all of their fundamentals and put them together and really start to have fun with them out in the field. So... Now, what, okay, so what do you do? Let's say, obviously, you're not going to go hunting year-round unless you have your own private property. So what happens when hunting season is over? What do you do to keep your dog occupied? Because I would assume that over the summer, your dog may forget a few hunting tactics or something. What do you do to keep your dog busy during that time? Right, so even if you've got private property, there are hunting seasons for birds. So, you know, it's not like you can just go hunt your own property, even if it's the middle of June, there are regulations to that. Typically the waterfowl season starts, let's say at the beginning of October here in Montana and ends somewhere around the beginning or middle of January. Uh, pheasant season's a little bit shorter. Um, so, um, you know, the, the hunting season, you're exactly right. It's a, small window of opportunity to really put all the work together uh, as a professional dog trainer and a fascinated, you know, I'm fascinated with dog training. My training goes on all year long, just like a professional athlete. Uh, they don't take time off. I mean, they might, you know, they're not playing game after game every day, but you know, they're off season, they're, they're training and they're working and they're 
getting ready for the next season. Um, there are some what they call hunt tests that I participate in uh, during the summertime and hunt tests are usually organized by dog clubs like the AKC or the UKC, uh, the American Kennel Club or the United Kennel Club. And they will put on what I would consider our mock hunts. And those uh, tests um, are designed to um, really see what your dog can do uh, in the off season. And a lot of times people will use those opportunities to gain titles on their dogs. And I don't want to go too far off topic, but those titles are something that a lot of breeders will use to prove to other um, clients that, hey, this dog has the right stuff. So earlier I talked about, well, you can't just take the word of a, a breeder that says, oh, my dog hunts. These hunt tests will actually, you know, if you hit all the marks and hit the, you know, pass the tests and you do it a number of times, you receive titles. And those titles basically become part of your dog's name telling other people that if you want to breed that dog or get puppies from that dog, that this dog has proven that it can um, do the right, do the right thing when it comes to being able to hunt. So I participate in a few of those in the summertime um, to keep my dogs busy. Um, but overall, I, I love to train and I love to, what we joke about, we play hunt, right? We're like 12 year old boys out there playing with our dogs, pretending we're hunting. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And I always try to encourage my clients to do the same thing in the off season, because look, these dogs, like I said earlier, are only with us 10 to 15 years. And if we are just hunting them a few weeks out of the year, I just feel like they're not really getting as much as they could during their life. So I try to do as much as I possibly can with them uh, when it comes to gun dog training and hunting. But look, they're also my pets, right? My dogs are part of my family. Um, they are by no means my children, but they are a part of our family and they're welcome in our home. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, if we go boating or we go camping or we go hiking, that that's part of their life too. And they should be able to enjoy that downtime doing that kind of stuff as well. So. So how does a test hunt work? I know we might be getting off topic, but somebody's out there probably wondering that. Uh, how does it, what is a test hunt and how does it work? Well, it's called a hunt test. Oh, um, okay. A lot of times people uh, will, will uh, hear the term field trial. They're actually two different um, setups. Uh, field trials tend to be uh, much more strict and a lot more challenging in distances, uh, whereas hunt tests we're really designed to mimic more of a hunting scenario. So there's, again, it's, it's probably a whole nother podcast I could get into, but if someone's interested in hunt tests, what you're looking to do is really do some basic obedience training with your dog, get your dog retrieving really well. And if you wanted to get started in that world, you know, the UKC has a pro as a, um, as, has a scenario, it's called the hunter retriever club and their first, title that you can work for is what they call a started dog. Uh, the AKC um, has hunt tests as well. And their first title is what they call a junior title. So you work up through the ranks, junior goes into senior and senior then goes into master. Uh, in the HRC, it's started to seasoned to finished. Um, 
both organizations are a little bit different. Uh, HRC requires um, that you use a gun during the testing. Um, and that gun is, uh, you know, we use blanks for that gun, but they're very strict about gun safety uh, during the test. So your dog can fail based on their performance and you can actually fail based on your performance if you're not safe with the weapon. So um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot more that goes into those tests, but they're, they're, they're very fun. Uh, they're, they're, the thing that I love most about hunt tests is that they keep people on task rather than just setting up your dog and going, okay, it's August. We got to start hunting here. And at the uh, beginning of September or, end, or uh, beginning of October, let's get started with our training. Um, for me, it's a great way to keep um, training my dog and shooting for goals and making sure that they're staying uh, sharp with the skills that they've learned over the years rather than just kind of getting them off the couch in August and hoping that we can get them back on track for our hunting season. So, Okay. Let's talk about something that I saw in your videos here. There's three videos on your website. By the way, uh, if you want to check out Marty's website, I should have mentioned this in the beginning. There is a link in the show notes, though. It's flycreekkennels.com, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Flycreekkennels.com, the website. Let's talk about putting your dog in a crate. Actually, before we go there, I noticed that uh, one of the videos you would say free in a high-pitched tone voice, and you said that you do that because the dog can hear the higher frequencies. And then one particular video, you said free, and that's when the dog would stand up, and then it would sit down, and you'd use a clicker. And then there's one video, I guess, where you'd say free, and that would mean that the dog would come out of the crate, correct? That's correct. Yep. Okay. So all of my commands come with what I call a release word, right? Mm -hmm. So every command, whether it's sit, down, heel, place, come, here, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. the dog is to perform that skill until I tell them free. And the reason why is because um, I'm really trying to get that dog to stay in between the original command sit and the final command free, that dog is to continue to perform that behavior. So I personally don't use the word stay in my training because it's redundant in my method. Um, and the reason I do use free is because I can make it high pitch free, which tends to get a dog excited and allows, or it helps them um, break from a command uh, quickly. And it's also a word that I don't use often in sentences. So if I've got my dog in a sit state, for instance, if I tell my dog sit and I'm talking to you and you're asking, well, how's your day today, Marty? And, well, it's okay. And okay is my release word. My dog is most likely going to break because they heard that sound. Um, I often don't walk around using the word free. So for me, it's very um, specific to what I guess you would consider exercised finished. Uh, at ease you no longer have to stay at attention yeah so when you say uh, how do you teach the dog in the beginning free means get out of your crate or free means to stand up or instead how do you teach your dog what all those commands mean 
Uh, well, let's say if I'm guiding my dog into a sit command, I'll just use that as an example again. I'll guide them into a sit command, typically using food because dogs are a primary, that's one of their primary needs. And I can lure them into that position quickly. if I've got a piece of food in my hand. And then really, honestly, just by adding that word at a, you know, I'm doing this drill when these dogs are like eight, nine weeks old. I'm, I'm incorporating the sound sit. And then I'll just say the word free and move a little bit. And that dog is going to want to stand up. And oh, so, okay. and as so they do, I allow it. I don't stop it. And they start to realize that free means get up and move. So, and then as, okay. as time goes on and they become more experienced, I will ask them to stay there longer. And if they volunteer to move on their own before I release them, that's when I will stop them reset them and make them stay there for a little bit so they start to realize that oh wait a minute simon didn't say the magic word and unless i hear the magic word i need to continue to perform the task that you know he's asked me to do so and repetition is the key to it doing it over and over um being consistent with that method um making sure that um you know, when I do ask the dog to do something that I also remember to release the dog from doing it. And if you can do that consistently, they pick up on it pretty quick. Yeah. Okay. Also, uh, let's talk about crates. Uh, I guess it seems like it's a controversial subject to put your dog in a crate. Now you say, yes, put it in a crate because it's easy to transfer, you know, if you're going somewhere, you it's safer to have your dog in a crate as opposed to in the back seat of their, uh, in a car. Now, I've actually ridden with people where their dog was in the back seat, not in a crate. Surprisingly enough, the dog was very mellow. It wasn't barking or any of that. So I assume that dog probably had a little bit of training as to how to act, whether it was from someone like you or its owner. Um, but uh, yeah, tell us the advantage of the crates, obviously transportation, obviously if you're going to have it sleep in your bedroom, you want it in a crate at least while you're training it anyway. Uh, what's yes. another advantage of a crate? Now, obviously you don't want to put it in a crate all day. So how do you balance that out too? not putting it in a crate all day and knowing when to put it in. Well, first I want to just touch on the fact that dogs are den animals. Okay. And that's, that's just a fact. Um, they like to be in uh, a certain place that makes them feel safe. I think the biggest controversy really with crates is when people um, assume that it's a jail, that it's a, it's a bad place to put a dog because it reminds them of prison. Okay. And I, I understand that if you have your dog in a crate eight hours a day, that's not fair. Okay. That, that can be borderline abusive. Right. But if you have your dog in a crate for a few hours at a time with multiple breaks, that is not abusive. Um, that is a way to contain your dog to a specific spot that keeps them out of trouble or keeps them um, safe. Um, or ultimately, you want your dog to be able to say, hey, where's my spot? Where's my den? You've got your chair. Where's my place that I can go to get away from the crazy kids or the guests that are over? 
or, you know, maybe if they've got a light, uh, if they have a soft temperament and they, and they get nervous easily, where can they go to feel safe? And a crate can provide that for a dog. Um, the reason I love crates is because you never know when you're going to need. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, there's um, uh, uh, some sort of fire, right? People who live in areas where they could have a fire and you've got to uh, get your dog out of, um, out of your area and maybe leave them somewhere for a short period of time because you can't have them with you. They're most often going to be put in a kennel or in a crate. And if they don't understand how to deal with being confined to that space, then it is going to lead to more anxiety than is necessary. So, I mean, just as, I mean, that's just one example. Let's say if your dog gets injured, five years old, breaks a leg, hurts himself, and the vet tells you, okay, keep him confined, don't let him run around. Well, if you don't have your dog uh, trained to feel safe and comfortable in a crate, that's going to be impossible to do. One of the major reasons I use it at a young age is because it helps with potty training, okay? I think one of the biggest disservices to dogs um, that I've noticed during my 20-some-odd year doing this is Hollywood and television has humanized dogs so much that we tend to forget that they are actually animals. And so recently, I have started giving people this kind of different perspective. I said, look, look, let me, let me ask you this. If you were to get a goat and you were to buy a goat, would you bring that goat into your house and let it just wander around? And they look at me like I'm nuts. And oh, why yeah. ask me like a goat? But a goat is an animal and a dog is an animal. And believe it or not, they have a lot of similarities in the way that they behave. Believe it or not, real quick, I've actually, I actually know someone that had a pig in his house. I thought it was disgusting at first, but uh, it seemed to work out okay, oddly enough. Well, we've just become so desensitized to the fact that dogs should just wander around our home because they're part of our family, quote unquote, and therefore they shouldn't have any, uh, you know, we wouldn't stick our children in a crate, but we do put them in bassinets and we do put them in cribs. And it helps contain them to a place where we know that they're safe, where we know that they're not going to get into trouble. Basically, you're just saying, okay, so maybe put your dog in a crate for maybe two, three hours a day, let it out, you know, have a, uh, maybe have a break for an hour or two, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure. And then put it back in the crate, just kind of uh, do it repetitively is what you're saying. Yeah. And yes, exactly. I mean, you start out with, you know, uh, I, I like to feed my puppies. I, I like to start out when I've got a dog at a young age and, and I make it comfortable in there. I'll throw a blanket in there. I'll put their water in there. I'll, I'll feed them in there. When it, when it comes to being nap time, rather than letting them just lay around the living room, I will take advantage of putting them in the kennel and having them sleep in there. So their mind becomes um, comfortable with being in there because it's not just because your dog is misbehaving that you want to grab a hold of them and shove them in there. You want to be able to prevent problems from starting by containing them to that place during the day, on and off during the day. And look, a lot of us during um, COVID-19 quarantine 
went out and got dogs. And this was very relevant to uh, me and my staff this spring when we started becoming busy again and people started traveling again. We had a lot of dogs with high anxiety. And it was because they were home with their owners all day. They weren't used to being alone and they weren't used to being confined. And even if you are home all day, like I am, I work from my home. I force myself to put my dog in, I guess, what you consider a timeout where you have to take a couple hours, put them away for a couple of hours and teach them that sometimes being in the kennel is a necessity and it's not a bad thing. It's not a place where uh, you're going to be left behind. You're going to be left in there for eight hours on end. You know, if you're a person who works a lot and you do begin to crate train, you have if you're not going to be uh, around during the day to come by and let that dog out, you really should either hire somebody to come by a couple of times a day. If you've got a neighbor that can do it for you, if you've got, you know, a college kid or a, a friend or family member that can do it, it's really important that that dog does not spend all day in that thing. I really want to make that in, uh, uh, known that I'm, I'm not saying that you should lock a dog up. But you should condition your dog, in my opinion, to be able to stay with, you know, in a kennel for two to three hours at a time. And, you know, and, and it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Now, uh, I want to talk about an experience I had as a kid. And actually, I talked about this on the previous podcast, but I'll, I'll get to your viewpoint. Now, I realize you're probably at an unfair, uh, you're at a disadvantage because you didn't know the situation. You don't know the dog, but I remember as a kid and my parents actually should have handled this differently by making me use my cane as a kid instead of, uh, you know, just feeling around. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I am a blind person. And so the first, you know, when I was in kindergarten, my parents would walk with me. They walked with me to the bus stop for the first time. My mom did and said, here's where you do, here's where you get the bus. Well, I had to fill around, fill the fence, keep trailing the fence until there was a distinctive hole in the fence. I'm not sure how to describe it. I guess hole is the right way. And I remember one day doing that all of a sudden this dog and i knew it was on a chain because someone told me and i could hear the chain rattling all of a sudden this dog barked and it was right near my hand it was like it was going to bite it off or something it was really scared me first of all that dog i think was on a chain most of the time i'm not sure if that dog ever was bored or what uh, of course, this is back in the 1980s, back in 85, August, September of 85, and I'm sure it was probably more common to keep dogs on a chain back then. Um, do you think the dog was bored and was scared of me, or do you think it just wanted attention, or what do you think was happening there? Well, I think in general, chains are a bad idea, right? I mean, it, yeah. it, it leads to um, a sensation of frustration right you're you're strapped to a spot all day long uh you know you hit the end of the chain it can lead to aggression lead to frustration and you know so they're dangerous um I, i'm not a big fan of chaining a dog up look there are certain times where certain people 
uh, you know, they have a dog where they have to, you know, put a stake in the ground and put a cable in the ground and they have to contain that dog to a certain area. That's understandable. But over the long term, you really should have a secure fenced area for your dog to be able to wander around and be safe um, and, and not have to confine them to a chain. Um, in your case, um, you, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you have to think of action and reaction. What is the dog doing? What is the reaction the dog is getting? I use that a lot when it comes to assessing uh, dog behavior and problems that people are having. What's happening in the moment and you know, what is this dog doing and what is he getting from it? So you could say that, you know, the dog was getting a reaction out of other people walking by. He would charge the fence and the average person who can see is going to move away, is going to react and back away. The dog's going to get a sense of empowerment uh, from that and he's doing his job, right? Keeping him out of my territory. And in your case, you, you probably didn't react as fast as most people do just because of the fact that you didn't see it coming, right? And yeah. so that could have added another level of frustration. But one of the fascinating things, and this, this kind of falls into play as well, you know, you get a lot of dogs in city limits, inside city limits, uh, that are aggressive toward delivery people, well, mailman, UPS guy, FedEx guy, whatever it might be. And what's interesting is they, they don't understand, the dogs do not understand that the mailman's going to come every day, he's going to drop off the mail every day, and he's going to leave after he's done dropping off the mail. And a lot of times I believe that these dogs assume that because of their behavior, they're barking, they're growling, they're banging at the window, that they have caused the person to leave, not knowing that this is the routine of the delivery person. Okay, so, so wouldn't the dog figure that out, though, eventually, the same person just coming, <laughs> wouldn't the dog catch on eventually? You would think so. But let's say the dog's getting a rush from it and, in a sense, being rewarded because what he's doing is working. I don't want you here, and you leave. Now, some dogs, yeah, I mean, they, they probably have a demeanor or temperament that says, nah, I don't care, whatever, hi, how are you? Guy comes by with a treat, gives him a treat, and they're fine with him. But the ones that really are very territorial, it becomes a, a job for them, right? Like, oh, here he comes in between noon and two. And he runs to the window, he runs to the door, and he bangs on it, and the person leaves. And the dog, you know, assumes that, well, once again, I'm the winner, you're the loser. And if you come by, I'm going to be consistent and do the same thing over again tomorrow. Now, this is theory, right? Action, reaction. And it's the way that I try to analyze dog behaviors is breaking it down and, and using logic rather than anthropomorphic behavior, human behavior to determine what the dog is doing. And a lot of times that can uh, help me um, and gives me the advantage in helping people to kind of pull them out of their line of thinking, which is very often they, you know, uh, assume the dog is protecting them right and that, again could be a whole nother form of podcast for us but most often dogs are protecting themselves they're not protecting their owners so. yeah um, i wanted to ask you uh, a couple more questions here 
I forgot to ask you earlier in the podcast, do you think an Anatolius would make a good hunting dog? I know that they're good livestock guardian dogs. You did a whole podcast on that. You think they'd make good hunting dogs? Um, I, I wouldn't choose one to hunt with. I would choose one for what you're talk, talking about, you know, protecting a herd, um, things like that. I, you know, years ago, I was actually hired to help a group in Billings um, train uh, and in, how, how do you say it again, Kevin? I always get caught up. On Anatolian. This. I, know Anatolian. I had a hard time with that. Right? I had a hard time with that word for a while too. Yeah. Anatolian. And basically what it was, was um, it was a group in Billings that has a bird sanctuary and they called me because they had one of these Anatolians and they asked me to come and teach the dog how to stay within the confines of their property. And their goal was to use the dog to protect the waterfowl, the ducks from outside predators. And, you know, kind of a young dog trainer and want to help everybody with everything. I jumped on it and went out there and was fascinated with the ducks in general anyway, because I was a duck hunter at this point. So I went out there and I asked them, I said, okay, where, where are the boundaries? And they showed me around the place and amazing, amazing place. I mean, the, the amount of birds that were in this area were, were just incredible. And so I did use an electronic collar to help teach the dog the boundaries of this facility. And what was amazing was I would sit up on a bluff and I would watch this dog with my binoculars and I would use the electronic collar to create this boundary. If he went toward a fence, I would you know, give him a slight stem on the collar and try to you know, teach him the, the hot stove theory. Don't go toward that. Stay, stay within your boundaries. And over time, it was amazing how he would do his natural thing. He would sit by a flock of ducks and lay there and have his head up in the, in the air and take on scent and just basically be this very stoic guardian over the birds. And it fascinated me to watch him do what he was really bred to do. Um, you know, one of the other things they had me train him was when, when they would call him. He had a bit of an independent streak to him. So when they would call him, there were a lot of times he didn't want to come to them. Well, it was important that at night when they closed the facility that they could bring him in and put him inside. Or if they did have him in a certain yard at night, that he would go to a certain yard that had fencing. And there were times where he didn't want to come. So I, that was part of what they hired me to do as well as teach him how to come when called the first time, not the 10th time. So, but as for a hunting dog, you know, it wouldn't be the dog that I would choose um, to do that um, because I don't know how much um, drive the dog would have to really want to hunt. I think the dog was really has this innate instinct to guard, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, uh, do you think hunting dogs and guide dogs have the same intuition? Um. You really, that's a good question. You know, when it comes to hunting dogs, you kind of want a dog that has a lot of energy, right? You want to have a dog that has this switch where when it goes on and you wake up at four o'clock in the morning and it's cold 
it's dark and you go down to the river or, or water, you go out to a field, and you want this dog to work and, you know, retrieve and, you know, be in these elements. You really want a dog that's a little nutty to do that. Right? <laughs> you, you want a dog that's not going to care about um, the elements and persevere through all those different elements. And so overall, you know, you want a dog, like I said, that, that is a little, little crazy. Whereas with a guide dog, you want that same level of intelligence, but you want a calm dog. You want a dog that is not going to be a nuisance. That's not going to be obnoxious. That's not going to be constantly wanting to move and go and do things. And so, you know, oddly enough, another thing that drives me crazy as a professional dog trainer is the amount of people that will use their dogs, which could be the completely the wrong dog as a therapy dog or a service dog or a guide dog or what they would assume would be a guide dog. There's a lot of work to what true guide dogs do. Years and years of training, not only uh, to teach them how to do what they're supposed to do, but then teach the handlers, the new owners, how to work their dogs appropriately. And honestly, a lot of dogs that have um, a chance to become a guide dog don't make the cut. I mean, it's very interesting how particular true guide dog trainers are and what they're looking for. And the slightest... Um, temperament defect or behavior defect can cut them from a program quickly. It, it, it amazes me. As a matter of fact, I've had a client a couple of years ago who was fostering a puppy from a program out of California. And these were going to be guide dogs and they placed them all throughout the country for people to uh, foster. And the deal is this, you foster the dog for the first um, I think it's somewhere between six to 12 months. And then this organization will take the dog back, test the dog for certain temperament traits. And if that dog makes that cut, you then have to give that dog to the organization to move on to the next level of training. If they don't make that cut, you then have the right to adopt the dog if that's something you want to do you have first choice basically to adopt the dog but if the dog doesn't make the cut they are going to find it a caring home where the dog will become a companion and a pet and not a guide dog and the client that i had that was doing this i just kudos to her for doing it i told her i said i i wouldn't be able to do that i would fall in love with this dog way too quickly and i would have a really hard time you know, giving the dog away. And she was so noble about it. She's like, Hey, this is what I, you know, this is why I'm doing it. And if, and if she turns out to be a dog that doesn't make the cut, then she'll be with us. And if she does, then she'll go out into the world and she'll help somebody, uh, you know, navigate through this crazy world we live in. End of story is that the dog didn't make the cut. She now does own the dog. I still get to see the dog because she'll bring the dog out for boarding, but we did a lot of training with that dog and the dog was actually a really good dog, but there was something about the dog's temperament. I think, I think she was a little too possessive 
over toys, I think is what it was. Oh. And just enough to cut her from the program, you know, and, and trust me, this dog is, doesn't have an aggressive bone in her body. But I will tell you this, she would make a terrible hunter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, just way Probably too not a good livestock guardian dog either. No, no, no. But, you know, great, great companion, great family dog, very healthy, well-rounded in the mind. Um, just a sweet, sweet dog. So interesting yeah yeah there's a lot of questions i want to ask you but um, i'm trying to keep this podcast under an hour we've gone over but one question i have i know you're not a prepper mm -hmm. but what gun would you recommend for a prepper or what gun do you like maybe you know a prepper that recommends a gun or maybe you like a certain gun you know this is montana and this is a prepper yeah. podcast so i'm a big fan i think the remington 870 is a great shotgun. What is it? Um, it's a shotgun, pump shotgun, 12-gauge shotgun. Oh, um, okay. I think it's great because you can shoot waterfowl with it, and you can also load it with slugs and shoot big game with it. You know, you can shoot a deer with it. So it's versatile in that sense, you know. Now, the 12-gauge shotgun, is that the one that you shoot and it kicks you back? Because I, I, th I think I shot a 12-gauge. Yeah, 12-gauge has got some kick to it, that's for sure. But I guess they don't have a 50-gauge one, do they? Oh, gosh, no. Okay, it must have been a 12-gauge. I was uh, nine years old when I shot it, and it didn't make me fall, but it certainly gave me a kick, uh, certainly gave me a kick in the shoulders, like it was forcing me back. Yeah, it's got a lot of punch to it, that's for sure. Um, you know, you want to be able to hold it tight to your shoulder and have some weight behind you. You don't really want to shoot that gun when you, when you're a lightweight person, you know, if you weigh 98 pounds, it's going to give you some, give you some kick. Oh yeah. So you do need to be prepared for it and practice with it and use it in order to really get a feel for it, you know? Yeah. So, but that's, that's the one I would recommend. That's actually the first gun I ever owned. Uh, I had it for many years before I ever bought anything else. And, um, it was a well-rounded gun for me. I mean, you can shoot turkey, you can shoot waterfowl, you can shoot pheasants, you can, like I said, shoot deer if you got the right ammunition in it. So, yeah. Well, last question: What do you like about your job? You know what I really like about my job, and this is kind of off the topic of dogs, but it's not. Is I get to meet a lot of different people from all walks of life because of the fact that they own a dog. You know, I, I, I was talking to a group of friends this weekend about that. And it's amazing how many people from all walks of life, including yourself that I get to meet because of the dog. And I think that's my favorite part. <laughs> it really is. And it, it's probably not the answer people are hoping for, but I'm just always interested in uh, people in general. And, you know, I just think it's a, it's a common denominator that brings us all together as a dog. So, yeah. Well, anything that I've forgotten to go over, anything you want to add to the podcast? You know, not that I can think of Kevin. I, I, I really don't. I, uh, I appreciate you having me on. I hope it's been uh, some value to you and your podcast and some of your listeners. 
Um, but overall, I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate the invite. We should be having a podcast, if all goes well, hopefully. On Saturday afternoon, I will be taking a Thanksgiving vacation like most people. So I'm hoping on Saturday I can make it up by putting a podcast out there. Uh, Suzanne Sherman will be back uh, if all goes well. By the way, Suzanne Sherman is the one that you heard doing the voiceover work for this podcast. And Brian Hyde will do the end of this podcast. In the meantime... I will talk to you later, folks. Thank you for listening to the Canning Plus 7 podcast. If you have a comment or suggestion, email Kevin Williams at canningplus7 at protonmail.com. Remember when emailing him, the plus is spelled out instead of the plus sign. You can also check him out on Facebook at Canning Plus 7. That's Canning Plus 7 with the plus symbol instead of the word plus on the Canning Plus 7 Facebook page.